one of the things I hear from my friends is going to a museum or going to see art is not really an activity in their vocabulary because it forces you to slow down. Yeah, maybe it's just an age thing rather than generational thing, but a lot of my friends want to do active activities or going out and that emotional response is really what I'm trying to show art has the power to do. Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss their passion for collecting. Today we're speaking with Gary Ye. Gary discovered his passion for art whilst in high school and pursued it throughout college. While studying at Duke University, he served as co-chair of the Student Advisory Board at the National Museum of Art and launched a virtual art gallery. Gary is the founder of Art Drunk, an art media company he launched on Instagram that aims to break down barriers to connect a new generation of art enthusiasts. Before we begin our interview, I'd like to share our vision for Collect Wisely. This is an initiative we've wanted to do for quite some time, in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century, and through doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of collectors and individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. My name is Sean Kelly, and I have had a gallery in New York since 1991. Each Collect Wisely episode will bring you personal stories from the perspective of an individual collector, where we delve into their passion for collecting, what drives them, and what inspires them. Welcome, Gary, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Um, <clears throat> I've got to get this out of the way, straight out of the gate. Uh, I don't think I've ever met anybody of your age who's done more than you have done at such a tender age. <laughs> <laughs> you start, you, you decided you were interested in art at school. Mm -hmm. You pursued it at college. You started a virtual gallery. And before you'd even left college, you started um, an, a, an, in, an art internet company. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Where does that all come from? I, I think it was a lot of it was driven. Uh, so I grew up outside DC, so had a lot of access to the, the free museums there, the National Gallery, the Smithsonian Institute, and I think a lot of my experience with the arts early on was just access to free art. Uh, not really so much the gallery scene, like in Chelsea or or Upper East Side, but being able to just see art at that time, in high school especially, I think made a huge impact on me that as soon as I started getting more involved in the art world with the galleries and collecting, I realized there wasn't as much of that, I guess, freedom almost of easily approaching galleries. And, you know, I, like I don't come from a collecting background at all. My parents are, uh, they're first generation immigrants to the US and there is never this, I guess, uh, culture within my family of art, of fine art, visual arts. And so I think for me to just sort of come into it, it's had such a hu huge impact on my life that I thought, why not try to spread it to more people? Can you identify where that Im impetus came from? I mean, it, w was it because you were denied access to art that became fascinating? Or were you being reactionary by becoming interested in art? Or were your parents, you know, you clearly yeah. said your parents weren't, collectors. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so where does it come from? I think it comes from... So I, I've actually written about this a couple of times where 
I, I had depression for a very long stretch of my childhood. And for me, art was always that sort of thing that was there that I sort of lashed onto very quickly. Were you making work? I was, I'm terrible at art. <laughs> so I think that's, that's actually another reason why I like it so much where, you know, it's funny, I always, in high school especially, I would hear my friends say, oh, I could do that. I mean, you hear this all the time. Sure. Of, my child could do that. But as soon as I started trying to make art, I was like, eh, you really can't do that. I mean, I've heard this from a, a, a number of people who've become artists, mm -hmm. uh, that it was a sort of refuge for them in their childhood. I mean, many of them maybe were dyslexic or were having trouble with learning or blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and art for them became somewhere they could go and make it their own and, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and inhabit. It became another another universe in yeah. a certain way, right? Um, but that isn't your story at all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I think it, I do view it as a universe in itself, not from the making aspect, but of the appreciating, where I think, again, going back to the whole depression idea, or, you know, my history with depression, it became a safe haven where I could make it my own experience. It wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't judged by the art, it was me deciding what I wanted that art experience to be. But you weren't retreating into playing video games. I still play um, video games. Oh, you do? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I still did, yeah. <laughs> you, but you weren't retreating into that as a, a place that you could hide. Yeah. And you weren't making work. Yeah. You were actually going to institutions and looking at art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's, <clears throat> I think that that's something that, I mean, I personally I will probably have to still think about and process as I get older. Um, you know, a lot of the art that I appreciate and really love, I still don't know why I love it. And I think it's that same idea of, I don't really f know how I got into it. It's just I fell into it and just loved it. So were your parents sitting there going, you know, as a son, son of immigrants, were they sitting there going, we want you to be a lawyer or a doctor or something of that uh, sort? Absolutely. <laughs> Was there yeah. a lot of pressure? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like, so in, in college I studied, uh, I majored in art history with a minor in economics. Originally I went in thinking I would double major with economics <laughs> and that was purely to make my parents a little happier. Um, I, I think early on they knew, I, they, they did sort of force that lawyer and doctor discussion when I was in high school, but I think very, very quickly they realized that wasn't the path for me. Please tell me that you're not, generationally, your generation isn't coming out of college wanting to be art dealers. Because it used to be that they'd come out and want to be bankers or, you know, on Wall Street, mm -hmm. right? That seems to have calmed down a little bit. But hopefully the next generation, you're 24 years old. Yeah. I mean, you are extremely young to be a collector, and that's why I'm so interested to talk to you. Um, you're, hopefully, please tell me your generation isn't coming out wanting to be dealers. Well, I mean, it's funny because, like, when I, when I was studying art history and economics, that was actually a very natural thing for me to want to do. Right. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the same for my peers, but I think they're, you know, like, banking and consulting is still very much, at least, so I went to Duke and there it's still very much the sort of go-to careers, yeah. at least to start. Yeah. So. And do your parents have any clue how you are getting through the world and what you're doing? And does it make sense to them now? Uh, I think they, so I, I still have a job, a day job that is in financial technology. Aha. Uh -huh. So I, that's that's the catch. <laughs> so that that's what you're fobbing them off with. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully they're not listening to the podcast. Otherwise, they're yeah. gonna, the, the game will be up. Right. But you're fobbing them off with the day job. Yeah. And then and you're sort of asleep at the computer during the day, and then you <laughs> awake at night, 
<clears throat> and you're rushing out to the galleries and an artist studios. I mean, it's funny how accurate everything you just said is. Where oh, I was joking. No, but it, but it's true though. <laughs> it's true though. Where you know, it's uh, I. Maybe I shouldn't be so open because I, I doubt my coworkers will no, listen no, no. to this. No, 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 it's good. I, <laughs> but, none of them are listening. If, yeah. they, do, if, if they do, we'll cancel yeah, any yeah, subscriptions. Yeah. But uh, no, it's it's funny because, like, I was in Miami last week, yeah. um, and I was so right now I, I work remote full time. You were in Miami for the art fair. Last for the art fair, week. exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, my my company is actually based out of Philadelphia. That's where I started. That's where I lived for a year. And then I moved back home to Virginia uh, to save up before moving up to New York. And so I, I've been working remote full time for about four or five months. And through that, I've taken advantage of getting to just travel to different cities to see art during the week without yeah. my bosses necessarily knowing. Uh, Do you have a boss? Yeah, so I, I have a boss. And then not with Art Trunk, but this is my day yeah. job. Yeah. And, you know, she's very open about are very kind to let me actually pursue this. Like she sees it as my own personal development outside the company. Which is very enlightened. Yeah, and so I'm very blessed to have that, but I think it's it's starting to reach a point where, uh, you know, Miami especially was very difficult where, you know, I was sitting in the VIP lounge trying to do my day job and then every 10 minutes I had a break, I'd run out, take some pictures <laughs> and then come back in. And so it's starting to get a little difficult to balance, but it's, that you, is, it is the rush. Can you tell us what Art Drunk is? So I, what I view Art Drunk is really the gateway for a lot of my peers who aren't into art, millennials in general, to start learning about and appreciating art. Um, again, because I don't have, I didn't come from like a collecting background, my parents weren't into it. And I sort of fell into it, and it had such a huge impact. I wanted to spread that to more people. So you're an evangelist. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far. But, but uh, I. I think there was. You know, it started all on Instagram, where I was posting pictures, and it sort of tied into the collecting aspect as well, because I was taking pictures of work that I liked, and using Instagram as a diary of sorts, where. Uh, it was purely. You know, even though I studied art history, my responses on Instagram were purely just a, a genuine reaction to a work. It had nothing to do with knowing about a work or having a history with the work. It was just, what did I see? What did I like? Trying to make it as plain as possible. And out of that, I think a lot of people appreciated that insight that wasn't academic or academically grounded uh, and more personal almost. My guess is that if, if uh, most people listening to us uh, um, are au fait with podcasts, they're going to either be on Instagram or know something about Instagram. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they'd be able to find you and follow you. Yeah. But there may be some people who are not listening. But what I do want to do is put in context, um, for a 17-year-old at mm -hmm. college who gets committed to starting a sort of Insta an Instagram company, as it were, yeah. and who's now, as I said, the tender age of 24, um, tell us how many follow followers you have. Uh, so I recently broke 65,000. I mean, that's an <laughs> enormous number of people. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, yeah, when I, do t when I take a step back and really think about it, it is, it's a ton of people. That's a lot it's of, a ton people of people to have following you. How did that happen? I think it was, you know, I, early on, um, you know, I would Google, or, it, it, I never imagined and never intended it to take off like it has. Again, 
it was very personal. It was meant to just be, you Perhaps know. Perhaps that's why it's so successful. Yeah, I guess so. And I, I think it's, it took off, you know, it took like a year, year and a half to, to get to 10,000, maybe even two years. But then after that, I think naturally, because Instagram algorithms or whatever just picked it up and it's so technically, you could be classified as an influencer, I guess. Yeah. Right. But you're not somebody who is setting out to be a cultural influencer. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the beauty of what you're doing is that you you are really just very passionate about what you do. You love what you what you're seeing. Yeah. You're sharing it, and somehow over the airwaves, down the tubes, that enthusiasm is being communicated to people. And people are really very supportive of what you're doing mm -hmm. because they, they find it to be very genuine. Yeah, I think it's, that, that, that does come up a lot, genuine, where, I mean, I don't, I guess I don't force it. I just, I guess it comes out, but that is what I, it's just on Instagram now, but that's what I'm trying to develop out further, whether it's YouTube videos or more content on my website, to but, try to make that more. But do you see the model for that enthusiasm translating into being a company? And if so, what does that look like? Or does it need to stay a very personal passion for you? I think it's, I think they can happen uh, simultaneously. And I think it's, I want it to. I wanted to grow it because it's, again, I know the impact that it's had on my life. And I know, as again, as someone who has had no background at, it at all, if it could affect, you know, this kid from the suburbs, yeah. I'm sure it could reach other people as well. So why not try to spread it there? And if you were projecting ahead, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, by your standards, I'm a dinosaur. I'm a <laughs> dealer who has a gallery in bricks and mortar. Yeah. And, you know, I've been working with artists for all this time. I mean, if you projected ahead, Gary, and you, you did talk about being interested in being a dealer very early on. Yeah. You said that would be a very exciting thing to do and to make exhibitions, etc. But I mean, do you see in the future, you know, internet art dealers who yeah. are just, in, in essence, influencers, and there's no need for the kind of infrastructure and, and old school connoisseurship that we mm -hmm. all engage in? What, what do you think the future looks like? I think... So I don't think it'll go that extreme. At least I hope it doesn't. So I'm going to be able to keep my day job. Yes. <laughs> Thank goodness. Because <laughs> I, I, there, there's obviously something about seeing art in person. There's, there's really no replacing that. And I think my goal is really to, I see it as a, a funnel where if I can capture more millennials, you know, I know not everyone's going to come and actually go see the shows that I post, but if one or two actually do, I, that to me is I'm doing my job. I want to ask you a very specific question. I talked to one of the people I talked to recently knows one of the founders of Instagram and mm. they were telling me um, that, that that person is becoming a collector, but they do not collect f on Instagram, mm -hmm. that they feel it's very important to be in front of the object yeah. and to see the real work. And I would love to know whether you think that's true or not. Uh, so it's, <laughs> It's funny because the first, I guess, real major piece, at least major for me, that I bought was a, a six-foot painting that I only saw an image of on Instagram. Oh, this is going to be a good story. <laughs> already. And, and so this was, this was, I think, my sophomore year of college. And Okay, hang on. So you're 18 years old. I was probably 18 or 19, yeah. yeah. So you're 18 or 19. You, you don't have a... A family that's <coughs> giving yeah. you money to collect. No. 
<coughs> you're sitting in your dorm room and you're about to buy a six foot painting. Yeah. That's not normal. It's not. It's not. That is not normal. <laughs> I, I think. Where is this coming from? Yeah. I, so I, I think there's the collecting idea or the collecting. I wouldn't say habit because I didn't. I wasn't collecting anything, but uh, I got into. I wanted to collect watches initially. Uh -huh. So this is in high school. I mean, even as early as middle school. And so another part of my story, and I always call myself an old man because all these weird interests at this age. But I, I used to fix pocket watches. And that was, uh, I was very interested in wristwatches, couldn't afford any. So I was like, well, what would be a way to try to actually afford one? So I built a business, very small business, just in high school and a little bit in college of fixing pocket watches and reselling them. Uh, and so it was, I, I sort of had this idea of collecting in mind at that age. And then eventually I was like, well, you know, a $6,000 watch would be nice, but an artwork would be nicer. Eventually, mentally, I, I reached that stage and I was like, well, you know, this painting that I, the six foot painting was only a couple thousand dollars. I'd saved up for a watch, but you know, that's, that's a lot cheaper than a watch actually. So you were saving up for a watch. Yeah. <clears throat> and then he saw this painting and he thought, why not? <laughs> Shift directions. Yeah. yeah. So you bought it. Come on, I want to hear the rest of the story because I know this is going to add end badly, yeah. right? No, well, I, I wouldn't. So there, there's a lot of. I wouldn't say it ended badly. Okay. It, it's you know, I, it, there's what I love about it is, and what I when I collect, I don't collect that much, but when I collect it, every single piece, and I'm sure most collectors, it's very personal. Yeah, and for cool. each piece, there has to be a story. I was in college and I was I didn't have that much money, so it was a couple thousand dollars and then couldn't afford the shipping. It was from an artist based in Oslo. And so he didn't, I don't think he had a gallery at the time. So he was like, you know what? I'll create it myself. I'll bring it to the airport if you can pick it up in the US from the airport there. So that, that's what I did. And you know, my dad, my dad went to the airport with me, took the, the painting out of the crate, stuck it on the back of the trunk, uh, and then put the crate on top of the car. And that's how he brought it home. This is happening at the airport. This is happening at the airport. This is fabulous. <laughs> so so that, that was, you know, at first I was like, wow, this is, this is great already. I love collecting, but. Can I ask the obvious question? When you got it out of the crate, yeah. maybe after you got it home, yeah. not in the back of the car, but did you actually like it? So th there was, there was actually, there was a huge moment of fear at the airport because they, they had, there was a picture of the painting on. Was the moment of fear, will it fit in the back of the car? Or well, that too, that too. <laughs> No, there's a picture of the painting just like printed out, uh, slapped onto the crate, and it was very bad print quality. So I was afraid, uh-oh, is that what the painting actually looks like? Because, I mean, I, I was comfortable because it's a very minimalist piece, and so I, there wasn't like too much, I could kind of get the idea and that's why I was comfortable with it. I still love it, you know? It's maybe not my favorite piece that I own, but it's, but it's good that you still like it. I still, yeah, I still yeah. like it. And okay. it's, it's certainly the largest piece I have now still hangs at home in, in Virginia. Oh, that's good. I thought this was going to end badly. It's no, it's, no, end, no. it's ended well. Yeah. And it, I would say it's even ended even better than I thought. Cause then my junior year of college, I studied abroad and had a chance to visit the artist. And hmm. so I just did a trip to Oslo, stayed at his home, did a studio visit. He nice. showed me around and, turned out to be great so so you've made 
a connection both with an artist and it's become a travel option for yeah, you as well. So exactly. It ends well. If a younger collector <laughs> came and asked you, would you say, yeah, it's fine, buy on the internet? Or would you say, would you, would you have a sort of note of caution about doing that? I think it's if you've seen the work in person or you, you're familiar with the artists and what they've done previously and you're looking at a piece that's similar and you only have an image to go off of, I think that's fine. At, at least you have a sense of what's going on. So I could talk to you for a very long time. I mean, we're, we're, at the moment, we've really just talked about your life story in a funny way, but I want to talk to you more about collecting. I think your life story is absolutely fantastic. But I want to talk to you more about collecting, and I really want to get your sense of where you feel collecting is at right now for your generation mm -hmm. and what advice you would be offering to both people of your own age and even younger that, mm -hmm. were, that, that are interested in starting to collect. So can you, can you map out the trajectory of, of thinking about collecting? I mean, what, what was the first thing you bought? What was the next thing? How many things do you own? Do you still have all those things? Yeah. Do you still love them all? Yeah, <clears throat> I think so. I would say I, I had like two first pieces when I started collecting, which so the first one was in high school. It was just a small watercolor from a local DC artist. And at the time, I was I never thought of collecting as a thing you do. I uh, never thought of myself as a collector, none of that. Do you know? I, getting there. I think it's, you know, I, I think I'm definitely limited by funds. And I think part of that, you know, it's funny coming to, to talk to you today. I was thinking, man, all the people you've interviewed or, or have had these Collect Wisely podcasts with, they're major collectors. <laughs> and for me, it's I'm so early in that that I when I compare myself to these people, I don't know if I could co consider myself a collector. <laughs> but that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you, because you clearly are somebody who's been bitten by the collecting bug. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very clear that you are. Um, and, you know, your profile is, you, you know, it's very much out there as that's your identity to some extent, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and all the other conversations, pretty much, nearly all the other conversations I've had to date with collectors, I've been asking them to think back. You're actually in the moment. And that's yeah. what's really interesting about talking to you about doing it. Yeah. Because we're not asking you to think 30 years ago we're talking to you about doing it right now mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. being in the moment and and how much you can be reflexive about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely, yeah, I mean, I think you hit it where I definitely have the collecting bug and I think it's it's interesting listening to other stories. I think what's what was inspiring though, listening to all the other podcasts was how differently each person collects. Absolutely. And how that's, everyone does have their own story. That's what's so great about sitting down and talking to collectors because um, they don't have to have a roadmap the way a museum has a responsibility with either public or private funds and trustees. They don't have to have a roadmap. And they are often the first point of patronage for an artist. Mm -hmm. And they can react very quickly. And they can make a big difference to, to young artists and other artists <clears throat> with the speed at which they can move. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm sure that, you know, for a young artist, for you to collect them, you know, would be would be fantastic. Because if you have 65,000 people 
yeah. following you and you collecting young artists and you're posting them yeah. and saying, I'm enthusiastic about this artist. Suddenly that artist's audience has gone from his three studio mates or his flatmates, perhaps, or the, her flatmates to being 65,000 people overnight. Right. It's just a different, it's a different level of, it's a different way of communicating. <clears throat> so if you, if you can humor my ambition, <laughs> oh, I'm, I love your ambition. Yeah. I need to humor it at all. I want to yeah. adopt it. Yeah. I, you know, when you asked me earlier where I see Art Trunk going or where I want, what I want it to be, I, you know, nowadays, if I think fashion, I think Vogue or I think Vanity Fair, where, you know, different cultural things or different uh, industries always, there's usually one or two single um I don't know what you call it, but single points that everyone sort of thinks of when you say the term. With art, you know, I'll ask my friends, what do you think of when you think art? Is there a brand in mind? And there isn't really one. They might think of a museum, but it, there's not really a company or, or such that is a, a company that spreads culture in the way, or a media company that is so focused on art. There's Art Forum, there's all these different, you know, traditional, uh, Art media companies, but for the everyday person, they don't really know what those those are. Sure. So for me, the goal would be to to be that go-to brand of when you think art. Oh, art drunk, of course. But <clears throat> every single reference that you've made is a physical reference, mm -hmm. right? You've talked about museums; those are bricks and mortar. You've talked about magazine, a magazine, mm -hmm. Vogue, Art Forum; those are published; they're physical objects. But you talked about starting to collect in the post-internet age. Yeah. Um, you've talked about a fascination with very early on in, in having a gallery. You've talked about having your own museum at some point. Yeah. It seems <laughs> like all roads lead back to a physical, ob a physical structure in some way. It, it does. Is yeah. there an alternative to that in the future that is non-physical? Is there a virtual museum? Is there a museum without walls? Is there an electronic museum? Is there a phone museum or an internet museum? Mm -hmm. I mean, is there another way of imagining what we all what we are all obsessed with and, and love? Or is it always going to come back to the physical object? I mean, I, I would be very curious to see if technology can develop to eventually, I guess, create an art experience that is virtually as real as being there in person, where maybe it's virtual reality where you walk, you can actually walk around a painting and see the texture going to the sides and that sort of thing. I don't, we're definitely not there yet. Yeah. Um, and you know, for me, I think it's more of a, so you talked about the private museum, wanting to open a, a museum. And before that, that was always the, the dream to, to just have a single space you know, decades from now, obviously, but to have a space where I could show off my collection and to, to make it a, a public uh, good, in a, in a sense. But I think I've been to a lot of museum, private museums where it's beautiful spaces, but there's not many, very many people there, or there's not, it's in sort of fire art places that it's hard to get to. So I think the model is sort of in between where it's more, it doesn't have to be digital. I think there needs to be a digital presence so people know about it and people are, aware of what's going on, but I, I think it's actually small. What I want to build, I think, is, is more smaller spaces uh, all over the world. Is there a model that we should be thinking about where, which is, 
where art drunk is communicating ideas. I mean, at the moment, it's very much exclusively Instagram, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you're posting images. There isn't a kind of archive element to that. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like the, you know, in terms of media communication, um, as, as powerful as social media has become, there are still magazines occurring and some of them are becoming very successful, fairly new magazines like Cultured, mm -hmm. which, you know, when we were down in Miami, was the size of a, a, a doorstop. Yeah. It's like an yeah. old-fashioned Vogue. Yeah. And God bless them, they're doing a fantastic <laughs> job. Um, but is there a, is there a non-physical version of that that, that is uh, aspirational for Art Trunk? For the next, the immediate thing I'm thinking about next is YouTube, where... I mean, maybe, honestly, I think I spend too much time on YouTube, but you know, what I'm seeing is, I mean, even a generation younger than me, it's, it's less so, like even my friends, I, I wouldn't say they spend that much time on the platform, but YouTube is the number two search engine in the world behind Google. And for the art world to sort of not have adopted that yet, or I'm, I'm not seeing, <laughs> or I'm not seeing great content, whether from Gal, I, I think some museums are doing a great job, like the tape, Tate has done phenomenal videos, really entertaining, but there's still, the content I'm seeing is still like people sitting in chairs, getting interviewed, artists in their studios, panning to a work, panning back. It's, it's not exciting. So and, uh, uh, in terms of social media, do you think we're at such an early stage that we're still banging rocks together or are we slightly more advanced than that? I, the art world? Or yeah. yeah. I think it's, we're slightly more advanced. <laughs> Uh, but I, I think we're, what's always fascinated me is the fact that art itself just generally is such a progressive thing where, you know, to put out works that are new and unique and that really change the course of art history and be the leading edge of fashion or whatever, how it eventually spreads throughout culture, yet it hasn't really adopted technology in the ways other industries have. And so... I do think it's still, the art world is still very behind there. Uh, like even with social, even as something as simple as Instagram, it's almost like a lot of galleries use it just to post pictures of like what their shows are rather than trying to use it to engage with an audience, which I think is the missing So thing. can I ask you, a, I want to ask you a very straightforward, direct question mm -hmm. about your use of Instagram, if I'm correct. Yeah. I think... We talked about how genuine it was and how authentic it was earlier. You're not being paid to post shows. Yeah. Right? Not yet. Not I, yet. I'm hoping I, I, I do ah, eventually. That's very interesting yeah. because there's a certain sort of genuine purity to it, right? Mm -hmm. You are going, you're, you're putting up images of things that you're responding to that you really love. Mm -hmm. That has got you 65,000 followers. Um, and yet that model it, as an influencer, which I, I, I don't want to call you that just mm -hmm. yet, is to be paid. Yeah. Now, when you, if that happens and you start being paid, does that diminish the authenticity of what you're doing? Does it compromise it in any way? I think it, I, I, if, if, when it reaches that point, I will definitely be at risk of compromising it. But I think that's where... I'll have to be really careful of, you know, 
are these shows I was going to promote anyways. Would you and take then, the, would you take that support? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think like my day so job. So for anybody listening, this is yeah, one this of is. the most important visual arts influences <laughs> on the planet. Get, get your checkbooks out. Yeah. I mean, I mean that, that's the thing. I would love to create, you know, starting on Instagram, if I can, just to get paid to post artwork that I love. Like, why not? And then the next step would be branching that out to sponsored content on YouTube, where I work with artists and galleries that I already love uh, and promote them by creating videos for them. Yeah, I mean, I don't see any problem with that as long as you know why you're doing it and you're being very diligent about doing it for the right reasons. I mean, I used to be a curator and museum director and I became a gallerist. Mm -hmm. And when I did that, everybody said, oh, you're crossing a line, you'll never be allowed back, you're becoming involved in commerce, you're tainted yeah. in some way. Well, that has not proved to be the case in quite that way. And now so many more people are doing it, going in both directions. So I think that that was a rather old fashioned view. Yeah. And I think this is a much more contemporary view and realistic view of the world we live in. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, what it comes down to is uh, maintaining that kind of uh, singularity of thinking about what you're doing and doing it for the right reasons, mm -hmm. not just because you're getting paid to do it. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, for me personally, if I could travel the world and see art and get paid to do it, nothing's going to stop me. <laughs> as soon as I saw that Instagram could start being something I could earn money from, I was like, well, why not try to really build it out? Has your enthusiasm spilt over into your immediate social group? I think it's definitely starting to. There's no doubt about that. And I think it's, it's, it's unavoidable for them if they want to be friends with me. Because <laughs> it's virtually all I do so now. It comes with the package. It, it comes with the package. And you know, virtually everything I do now, every time I travel somewhere, it's art related. Anytime I go to a new Have city. Have any of them started collecting? Uh, no, not yet. They, I think they're starting to see you know, most of my friends who are sort of on the cusp of maybe collecting come from a finance background. Mm -hmm. So first off, they, they have the funds, but they also, for better or for worse, they do see the investment value. And so they, they're interested more oh, in that here it sense. comes. Now we get to that. Um, but I'm trying to get them to, you know, I, I, every time I come to New York, I bring them to galleries and, and museums. And is that, so this, this, that's great intro. So are they, are those, friends of yours, they're starting out talking about whether it's a good investment, mm -hmm. whether it's a good this, whether it's a good that. Are you saying that's not the point? Think about whether it's moving you, whether it's touching you, and whether you, you know, as a collector, yeah. as a proto-collector, it's going to be meaningful to you in your life in some way. Or is the conversation only about investing? It's definitely both. Definitely both. And I, I think it's, I'm to some degree comfortable talking about it in both cases because when I first got into art, it was uh, after seeing an Eve Klein retrospective. And this is before I knew anything about art. And when I went home and Googled who this guy was, I was like, wow, these are selling for a lot of money. And I didn't understand why monochrome could be worth over a million dollars. And so even early on, I had the financial aspect, not investment, just the pure financial aspect of it, of how much art could be valued at made me more interested in wanting to learn more. Why do people value it so much? Uh, and so I think from that aspect, that's why 
you know, I think that is more relatable in a sense for some of my friends, at least as a hook to get in as we're, as I try to help them develop more of an appreciation beyond that. Very interesting that virtually the first artist you have named by name yeah. <laughs> is a classic modernist, uh -huh. right? It's a conceptual artist and uh, somebody who died very young in his mm -hmm. late thirties, I think. Um, um, but who is a, an icon of modernism, whose work was very conceptually orientated, mm -hmm. who was a sort of enfant terrible of the 1950s, 1960s. You didn't immediately go to Artie Vierkamp. You're talking about Eve Klein. Yeah. yeah. Do you, so, I mean, in that context, do you think your taste is very classic? Uh, I think it's just, it's so, I mean, you say Artie Vierkamp, but it's, I mean, I love his work too. You know, it's my, I think what's interesting about having this conversation today at this age for me is I'm definitely going to be listening to this 10 years from now to see how things have changed. We're going to get you back 10 years from now and hold your feet to the fire and see what happens. Yeah. And, you know, even in the past, you know, there are things that I've fallen out of that I've, uh, that I've purchased. Uh, but it tells a story that I, I like to go back to and I like to, to see. Um, I like Eve Klein. I, I love minimalism. I love post-internet art. I'm starting to get into some figurative art as well. I haven't focused on one part or another specifically. So if you had, I mean, what's great about this, I can, I can ask you questions I can't ask anybody else. Because as, you, as you've observed, a lot of the people that we've talked to um, are seasoned collectors mm -hmm. who have the wherewithal to collect, you know, pretty specifically, broadly, what they'd like. Mm -hmm. You're not in that position. Yeah. If you were looking through the telescope in the other direction and you were a seasoned collector with much more wherewithal, mm -hmm. at this moment, what would you be collecting? I think Do you it, imagine? Yeah, I, I actually, I love film. Uh, it's a video art. And that is one thing that even if I had the funds would be very difficult to collect just because of space. And I, I think that's where, uh, so I mean, recently, like the David Clarebout show, I loved the film downstairs. Like that was one of the, my, literally one of my favorite things that I've ever seen because it connected, you know, growing up watching The Jungle Book. And then uh, I loved the Discovery Channel, <laughs> just watching these shows. But I, I think film in general, like being in this age, I don't, I don't know very many collectors who collect that, that area. And I would love to build that sort of collection yeah. on top of paintings and, and all that sort of thing. Well, if you listen to, we, we talked to Manuel de Santaran a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to Manuel, who started in the, you know, in very early on in, in the early 80s collecting film, I mean, that was quite an extraordinary conversation mm -hmm. uh, to realize that he'd been collecting it for that long. He doesn't even look that old <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I couldn't figure that out at all. Yeah. Um, I think he must have started about your age. Um, so, in the future, yeah, there you have talked about there being this museum, mm -hmm. um, and you're interested in you would be collecting film, which is which is fascinating. Are you wedded to any particular medium? I mean, you're not, you know, oh, it's painting, it's photography, it's yeah, it's it's sculpture. I guess one, maybe this wraps it all up together more nicely, but I, I think it, I'm not wedded to one particular medium because 
again, I even though I studied art history, I come from a very personal standpoint where if I, like minimalism, for example, I think my parents are so boggled why I would like something so plain, quote unquote plain in their perspective. But for me, it's, it's very, it has its beauty of being minimal and, and so forth. It, it is a very personal reaction to it and I just love it. And so any type of medium can, if I'm responding to it, that's to me all that really matters. There, there's no need to just collect painting or just collect photography. You've also spoken about minimalism as, um, uh, you've talked about minimalism in the same sentence you've talked about meditation. Mm -hmm. And I was particularly interested in, in that observation because what that speaks to is the constancy of human emotion. Mm -hmm. That generationally, um, things that, you know, a, a collector in the 19 in the early 20th century, in, the in 1915, when looking at Malevich, mm -hmm. would have been responding to the spiritual quality of that work, who might be doing it looking at a Robert Ryman painting today or an Agnes Martin. Um, and here you are, you're, you know, you're a millennial, you're talking about those kind of emotional responses to works mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. And I think what's beautiful about that is that it actually speaks to the constancy of human, of, of human need. Yeah. I think we as humans, uh, our desire for beauty and aesthetics and for thinking, great mm -hmm. thinking and great art, and for our spirits to be elevated, does not change generationally. Yeah. Do, no, you, think, yeah. do you think that's a fair observation? I do, I do, and I, I think that's, I think we're at risk of maybe losing that a little bit with my generation, where a lot of it, I think one of the, the things I hear from my friends is going to a museum or going to see art is not really an activity in their vocabulary because it forces you to slow down. Yet, maybe it's just an age thing rather than generational thing, but they a lot of my friends want to do active activities or going out and, you know, partying or whatever, you know? Sure. And so it's, there's that, that emotional response is really what I'm trying to show art has the power to do. Do you think that, that, that is, that we as humans are changing? Do you think that aesthetic, there's an aesthetic shift occurring because of technology inside us where our responses are changing as well? Do you think that our reliance upon technology and devices and the time we spend with them mm -hmm. um, is affecting a change in us either cerebrally or aesthetically that we may not be as aware of as we should be? I think if I, if I think back to, to Instagram, I think that is maybe one thing that actually is changing behavior a little bit where we're so used to this, this literal flood of information and images uh, that you know we're primed to not spend that much time with something, and so you know it, it's it's weird where we're consuming so much and actually seeing and getting more exposed more than previous generations, but at the same time not spending quality time uh, as before social media. Uh, this is something I was talking to Tiffany Zabludovich about, and I thought she was quite brilliant in the way that she responded to, to 
she really made me think about things very differently. And in essence, to boil it down, what she said was that she belongs to a generation that is more used to reading and seeing visual images than ever before in art history. And therefore, we should all be much better at it and we should mm -hmm. be much better collectors. The counter argument to that would be, you know, the one that I hear from a lot of people interested in photography or from, from photographers. And that is the the difficulty of making an image when everybody is a photographer, because we all have a, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a, a camera or a video camera in our pockets. Yeah. How, you know, so their question is, how can I, it's not like Henri Cartier-Bresson, we knew he made a great image because we've got the physical print and he, 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 he made, the, you know, exposed the negative, printed the print, showed us the print, and we know that art historically. How do we determine what a great image is now, right? That's a question for, that a lot of yeah. photographers are modeling. So at the same token, if we're all, if we all have this device in our pockets where we can all be great image makers, um, could that overload us to the point where we can't discern what a great image is anymore? That's a very good question. <laughs> I, I your your generation yeah. is supposed to have the answer. I don't yeah, know. yeah. I, no, I mean, that's that's definitely something something to think about, and it's you know maybe I have the wrong friends that that Tiffany does have, but I, I feel like my my you know my peers are very not well read in terms of art history. Where I think the type of it's almost what I'm trying to challenge is I don't think it's about being well read or or steeped in. Um you know, the the background. I think it's about just innately, mm -hmm. are we becoming better at reading images? Mm, oh, I see. Or not? Yeah. Because we are bombarded by them. And are we getting better at it or are we becoming overloaded? What do you, I, what do you I, think? I would think. You, you know, you said earlier, you spent a lot of time, too much time on YouTube. Yeah. Are you suffering from sort of visual overload or is that a good thing? I think it's more, I think it's visual overload where you know when you have so much thrown at you you just don't have there's only so much time in the day so if you're you really have to pick out what you want to spend more time with and i don't think people are doing that and if you want to do that with the real thing mm -hmm. with the physical object are you are you primarily sourcing that <clears throat> that fix from art fairs or from galleries or from museums i uh, Probably galleries the most, um, just because it's. I want to. I want everybody to know I did not pay. The <laughs> yeah, I mean, for for me, it's the most accessible. Where you know, even in New York now, you have to pay for to go into museums. Yeah, uh, galleries are free. Art fairs only happen. They happen very frequently Gal now. But yeah, galleries. It's a very good point. Galleries are free. Museums and art fairs are not free. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and. But art, art, I would say artist studios are actually where I enjoy seeing art, art the most. Because that is a really focused one or two hours in front of no more than usually five, five to ten pieces most. Uh, and so being able to slow down in that environment. Is and nice. are you, are you um, I, I remember when I first moved to New York, um, I met famous collectors, the Vogels, mm -hmm. who gave mm -hmm. their collection away. The, the famous, the legendary collectors, because they were, he was a postal worker and they mm -hmm. had a very limited budget. They built an incredible collection, which has ended up going to the National Gallery. <clears throat> and, you know, they told me that um, in, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, 
it was Richard Tuttle, the artist, who was literally taking them to his friend's studios and saying, buy that. Um, uh, and that's how they built their collection yeah. and ended up with so many extraordinary things. When you go to an artist's studio um, and you like the work, you're saying, is there somebody else I should go and see? Is there somebody else in the building? Is there somebody else around the corner? How, how is that network working? So it's sometimes that's happened very organically where like, where the artist will near the end of the studio visit, they're just they'll say, "Hey, by the way, did you want to see my friend? I, let, let me shoot him a text see if he's around." I uh, I haven't asked that directly normally, but I to your point, I do. I have started asking artists, "Who are the artists you're watching?" And I, I think it's interesting. Uh, Josh Smith, for example, he was an artist that it was probably two years ago where I really couldn't quite grasp what the hype was but almost every artist i would ask who which artists are you looking at they would say josh smith for some reason and so that led me to look into more his work more and you know th that whole idea uh, of like an artist artist that i still don't fully know what that means but i like that idea where there's a community of artists who are so in it uh maybe not fully removed from the market, but more into the art than anything else. And so for them to pick out an artist that they like, that is very attractive to me to, to want to explore more. <clears throat> Historically, the great forebears of modernism, if you like, um, many of those artists were not successful during their lifetimes. They were outsiders, often literally in the case of somebody like Van Gogh or Gauguin. Mm -hmm. um, and yet those have become icons, cultural icons and touchstones for the trajectory and the story of modernism. But they're very much people who are outside the system. Mm -hmm. Is that possible now, do you think, amongst younger artists that they can be outside the system? Or is it just the information flow, the ether is so pervasive that it's almost impossible to exist outside it? I think what, I, what I've started learning very recently is that there are many different art worlds. Uh, and so, you know, one thing that you see a lot on Instagram is these street artists who are, or, or, you know, graphic design artists, artists that wouldn't necessarily be part of the, the traditional gallery circuit, but they're phenomenally successful, selling, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of art every year just through Instagram. And so what's very, what I'm interested in to see in the long term is, are these the artists who, you know, even though the gallery network isn't really adopting them and really isn't necessarily seeing the value of them and from an art historical perspective, will they actually become the artists that we go to when we start looking back? Because if they're the ones who have the influence and are actually building an audience uh, in ways that traditional artists are not, there is something be said about that of the culture they they're they're fostering yeah i mean the art world would be greatly impoverished and very upset if it missed jean michel basquiat yeah yeah for instance yeah and um maybe we're just not looking in the right way mm -hmm. yeah possibly <laughs> so we have covered an enormous amount of territory. I mean, I'm not sure that we've talked so much about your collection, <laughs> but I do think it's fascinating because we've talked more about the philosophy of how mm -hmm. you're moving through the art world at a very rapid rate and what, what, um, what the changes are that are occurring.
Um, but I want to return you now to a last question, mm -hmm. and that is in this museum that you are going to build in yes. the future and that we will, we will speak to you again about. Yeah. Um, at some point in the future, you're going to have this institution and you're only going to be allowed to put one artwork in it. Mm -hmm. It can be any artwork from the history of art. It can be in any museum or private collection in the world. It could be something you own. Yeah. Um, what would you choose to spend eternity with? And by the way, you will not have access to your phone or Instagram. You're gonna to have to live with the artwork. <laughs> yeah. What would you pick? So it's, I, I love that question because, you know, if I, if I can't achieve these grand ambitions, the one thing I feel like I can achieve is to dedicate a single room in my future home to a single painting. And it's, so I, I've thought about this a lot of like, what, what would that single piece be if I couldn't rotate it? Uh, and it's Gerhard Richter's Betty. And I, I haven't actually seen it in person. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you should change that. Yeah, so I, I need to see it in person first. But there, there's a quality to it that, you know, I've always loved Richter, and so that came very naturally. But there's, you know, just the way his daughter is turned in that painting, and, you know, that obviously his technique of the, the photo, uh, the blurs and the, all that sort of thing, there's something that makes me want so much more out of it, where it's almost like she's in movement. It is a really living and breathing painting that I could respond to over and over and over again. Do you know one of the other qualities? I think it's a fantastic choice, and I would not be far behind you. I might come and steal it from your, <laughs> from your house in the future. Um, but do you know, uh, one of the things that that painting makes me think about a lot when I look at it is... Um, is Vermeer. Mm -hmm. I think it has, it's one of the few paintings of the 20, 20th, 21st century um, of this moment that has that quality that, that, that the great Vermeers have, and there are so few of them in the world, mm -hmm. of capturing a moment in time. But that moment in time, the stillness of that moment in time being forever. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is a painting which is both contemporary and historical. It could be from any period because it speaks about some of the things we were talking about earlier, which is just what it, what it means to be a human being yeah. and the, the consistencies that, that we're all subject to in terms of aesthetics. Yeah. I think it's a great, great choice and a great point at which to leave it. <laughs> So, thank Gary, you. it's been such a huge no, pleasure. No, thank you so much. This having, is so fun. Having you on Collect Wisely and talking to you about this has been a lot of fun. And I want to get you back in uh, precisely 10 years. 10 years, to the okay. Do it again. <laughs> Let's do it. And, and, and we'll see how much the, the choices have shifted in that intervening yeah. decade. I'll, I'll, I'm curious myself. Great. So. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Thank, thank you. you for coming on. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. Or you can email us at info at sky.com. You can also follow the Sean Kelly Gallery at Sean Kelly NY on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers!